In the chilly dawn of the New Mexico desert, the countdown began. It was 16th July 1945, and scientists, technicians and military men had gathered in the darkness to watch the world's first nuclear explosion. Edward Teller said, We were told to lie down in the sand, turn our faces away from the blast, and bury our head in our arms. No one complied. We were determined to look the beast in the eye. A warning rocket raced up into the darkness and burst in the sky. Scientists rubbed suntan lotion onto their hands and faces. A siren started in the distance and another rocket went up. This was the one-minute warning. Teller put on sunglasses and gloves and pressed some dark welder's glass to his eyes, still staring straight ahead, still determined to look the beast in the eye. And then, at 5.29am, the detonation. Some recollections of that infamous morning from Richard Rhodes' book, The Making of the Atomic Bomb. At the instant of the explosion, I was looking directly at it with no eye protection of any kind. I saw first a yellow glow, which grew almost instantly to an overwhelming white flash, so intense that I was completely blinded. By 20 or 30 seconds after the explosion, I was regaining normal vision. The grandeur and magnitude of the phenomenon were completely breathtaking. From 10 miles away, we saw the unbelievably brilliant flash. That was not the most impressive thing. We knew it was going to be blinding. We wore welder's glasses. The thing that got me was not the flash, but the blinding heats of a bright day on your face in the cold desert morning. It was like opening a hot oven with the sun coming out like a sunrise. The most striking impression was that of an overwhelmingly bright light. I was flabbergasted by the new spectacle. We saw the whole sky flash with unbelievable brightness, in spite of the very dark glasses we wore. I believed that for a moment I thought the explosion might set fire to the atmosphere and thus finish the earth, even though I knew that was not possible. After the bomb then, we know what to expect, don't we, by now. We've all seen pictures of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We know to expect devastation and some blackened skeletal buildings left upright here and there. But the Trinity nuclear test, the very first nuclear bomb, that happened in an empty stretch of desert. So there were no buildings for it to destroy. There was nothing there except the steel tower which held the bomb, nicknamed the Gadget, and that was left as just a collection of bent and dented steel stumps. So that's all that was left, that and a crater. And the crater, after the detonation, was lined with a strange new substance, which had 
just been created. This substance became known as Trinitite, after the Trinity test, of course, and had not existed on Earth until this point. The bomb made it. But what is it? Yes, there can be beauty in the nuclear spectacle. Our last episode was called Purple Fire, and we looked at why the mushroom cloud over Nagasaki was reported to be purple, and why the Trinity cloud was said to have scarlet and green and violet unfurling inside it. Beauty can coexist beside the horror. And was there beauty inside the crater? left by the Trinity explosion in New Mexico? Time magazine certainly reported it that way. Two months after the Trinity test, the media were invited out to the site of the world's first nuclear detonation to the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. Interestingly, um, long, long before the military had showed up, this area of the New Mexico desert had been given a name by the Spanish, who called it Jornada del Muerto, or Journey of the Dead. So inhospitable and harsh was this region. And now, following the Jornada del Muerto, came the military men and the science bods to bring into being the world's first nuclear bomb. And now, in September 1945, with the War One and American confidence high, the media were allowed to pile in. Robert Oppenheimer was there, posing for pics, standing over the twisted little stumps of the steel tower, and the journalist gops at the crater left by the Trinity bomb. It wasn't a huge crater, but it was remarkable because it was lined with something strange. A glassy green substance which had been created by the bomb's heat, hotter than the sun, of course. And this new glassy substance was nicknamed Trinitite. Originally, it was given the name Atomsite, or the more pretty Almogordo glass, but Trinitite is the name which stuck. So what is Trinitite? It's a greenish, slightly radioactive glass, which had been formed in Trinity's fireball. Glass is, of course, melted sand. Sand which has been subject to ferociously high temperatures. Well, you can't get much more ferocious than a nuclear fireball. So when the bomb exploded, it hefted the desert sand up into its fireball, 
up into the raging mushroom cloud where the wild heat turned up molten. As the heat died away, the melted sand solidified and was scattered back onto the ground in its new glassy form. Its greenish tinge coming from the iron that was present. Scientists had originally thought that the sand had been baked on the ground where it lay, like a huge creme brulee, with the nuclear fireball blasting and searing the sand on the ground. But it's now accepted that the sand was hauled upwards, just as the ruined and pulverised pieces of a city would be in a nuclear war. All that debris being sucked up into the fireball, turning radioactive, and later descending back down to Earth as follows. Trinitite, then, those uh, shreds and shards of glassy green, could be described as the world's first nuclear fallout. So, September 1945, and the media arrive at the Trinity test site, and they see that the crater is lined with this new substance, this Trinitite. Here's the poetic description from Time magazine, who described the crater as a lake of jade. Seen from the air, the crater itself seems a lake of green jade, shaped like a splashy star and set in a seared disk of burnt vegetation half a mile wide. From close up, the lake is a glistening incrustation of blue-green glass, 2,400 feet in diameter, formed when the molten soil solidified in air. The glass takes strange shapes, lopsided marbles, knobbly sheets a quarter inch thick, broken, thin-walled bubbles, green, worm-like forms. Okay, so we've got knobbly sheets and green, worm-like forms, so (laughs) don't imagine that Trinity is pretty. It's described as glass, but this isn't something you'll find in a gift shop on the Grand Canal. It looks ugly and grubby. It looks, when we see pictures of it now, like bumps and lumps of dirty, vaguely green rock. Nonetheless, it is a collector's item for nuclear nerds. I'd love to own a piece. You can still find and buy lumps of it online. Um, They even pop up on eBay sometimes. And of course, there are plenty of souvenir shops in New Mexico which sell pieces of it. But the stuff that you can buy and sell now is stuff which was legitimately taken from the site. But you can no longer do that. It is now illegal to scoop bits of it from the Trinity test site besides which most of it at the site has been uh, bulldozed. The Americans covered the crater in 1952, hiding the so-called glassy lake of jade, and so most of the Trinity has been buried. But if you do manage to find a piece, if you're exploring the site, you cannot remove it, it is now illegal. You will have to content yourself with the bits and pieces that pop up on eBay. So even though it might be 
bumpy and gnarled and ugly, and possibly desired only by nuclear nerds. Back in the 40s, some pieces of Trinitite were made into attractive jewellery. The anthropologist Martin Pfeiffer, who runs the excellent Twitter account called Nuclear Anthro, has written about this, and I recommend his blog if you want to find out more. Um, His blog shows us an advert for the jewellery from the 40s. And I'll quote it here, uh, remembering that Trinitite was originally given the name Atomsite. The advert says, Atomsite, the glass-like substance formed by the terrific heats of the explosion of the atomic bomb in New Mexico, has been made into jewellery. Merle Oberon, the movie star, was the first to wear it. Though at first this might seem to show a frivolous attitude towards a very serious subject, the purpose behind it was a good one. Miss Oberon wore jewellery made of the material to refute claims made by the Japanese that atomsite is radioactive long after an explosion of an atomic bomb. The whole surface of the crater formed by the explosion of the test bomb was covered with the new substance, which resulted from the instantaneous crystallisation of grains of sand under the intense heat generated by the explosion. Its colour varies from pale green to jade, and the first visitors to the scene of the bomb blast were awed by its eerie appearance. So there we have it. Pretty radioactive jewellery was made to try and derail newly emerging Japanese claims that people who had survived the bomb were later succumbing to the effects of radiation. And the Americans were trying to bat away that concern or stifle it. And one of the ways they did that was by making jewellery from the shards left by the nuclear bomb and having the lovely Merle Oberon wear it in her hair and on her ears. How can it be dangerous if she is wearing it on her neck? How can it be dangerous? Therefore, how can the Japanese be telling the truth? There were more attempts to silence Japanese claims in September 1945 when the New York Times talked about Japanese propaganda about radiation. The reporter William Lawrence, whom we quoted in the last two episodes as he was present on the bombing raid over Nagasaki and went into lyrical raptures about the purple fire and spectacular sights he saw from the plane, he said that he had visited the Trinity test site and that his visit, quote, gave the most effective answer today to Japanese propaganda that radiations were responsible for deaths even after the day of the explosion, August 6th, and that persons entering Hiroshima had contracted mysterious maladies due to persistent radioactivity. To give the lie to these claims, the army opened the closely guarded gates of this area for the first time to a group of newspapermen and photographers to witness for themselves radiation meters carried by a group of radiologists and to listen to expert testimony of several of the leading scientists who'd been intimately connected with the atomic bomb project. So if Trinitite can be worn as jewellery and if the media can be invited onto the site to clamber around, then the implication was that the Japanese were making up or exaggerating these claims of radiation sickness 
as Japanese propaganda. So that is how they used the greeny, glassy trinitite. Used it to silence Japanese concerns. If a beautiful Hollywood actress can wear trinitite around her neck, how can the Japanese be telling the truth? What a strange logic that is. So if that was a strange use for Trinitite in the 40s, we find in later years that Trinitite actually has a very clever practical use, and that is the role that it plays in so-called nuclear forensics. After the fall of the Soviet Union, there were worries about what was going to happen to all those Soviet nuclear weapons that were now scattered across Russia, Belarus, Ukraine and Kazakhstan. And in the initial chaos, how could we be sure that they were still being properly guarded and maintained? And who would assume control over them? So in this era, worries sharpened of nuclear terrorism, of someone underhanded getting hold of a nuclear bomb or nuclear material and smuggling it into some western city on a ship in a suitcase or detonating it as a dirty bomb. And if such an act of nuclear terrorism ever took place, how could you hope to find those responsible when the scene of the attack could be so utterly devastated? How could there be any evidence remaining at that site? Well, the existence of Trinitite, the very existence of that glassy lake of jade, shows that not everything is wiped out. Even at ground zero, something remains of the bomb. Scientists in 2010 showed that pieces of trinitite could be examined and they were able to identify materials in those little pieces of trinitite which gave clues to the bomb's identity. They were able to, by studying this little piece of trinitite, they were able to identify what materials were used to build the bomb. And using detective work, or nuclear forensics, you could then trace where those materials came from, and therefore where the bomb came from and who built it, who put it together, what they used to assemble it. The BBC quoted one of the scientists of this study, who said that many of the materials used in a nuclear bomb will be of local origin, and so can be traced. The nuclear material aside... The other materials that go to make the rest of the bomb to produce the critical mass would be obtained from local sources. And if you can trace those local sources, then in theory, you could trace your baddies. Here's a quote from the article. Perhaps if it's a gun-type device, an artillery barrel, maybe it was put in a shipping container, so maybe there were bricks around it, and they'll have records associated with them. For example, if someone were to use a lead tamper, then the isotopic composition of the lead would pinpoint, or at least narrow down, the number of lead mines it could come from. So the little shards and fragments left at ground zero, get one of them under a microscope, use your nuclear forensics, and you can perhaps trace the origins of the bomb. You can see what it's made of, and you can maybe trace where those things came from. Maybe in hundreds of thousands of years after we've all been wiped out in a nuclear holocaust, scientists of the future will find these little chips and they'll be able to work out what killed us. 
That is a cheery note on which to end the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this one. Remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or at my website at juliemcdowell.com.